Well, good morning, Westridge. How's everybody doing? Is there a hockey game or something tonight? I see. Okay. If you're uh, if you're new uh, or have missed a few weeks, we're in a series called Viral, looking at the Book of Acts, sort of an overview of the Book of Acts, asking ourselves the question: What was there about that early faith community that caused it to grow so far so fast? Our thesis is if we can get back to be that kind of community, or at least aspire to be that kind of community, we'll have the same kind of impact in this community and in this country and around the world. Today, I have five chapters I'm going to cover. Four, five, six, seven, eight. And I'm going to do it at supersonic speed. And uh, I'm not going to do it sequentially. So you linear thinkers, those of you who like to think sequentially, you'll be even more confused than you generally are when I speak, okay? So you ready? Got your seatbelts on, your tray table in the locked and upright position? Here we go. We've seen the early church go viral, I think, for a couple of broad reasons. One is because of the communion of the saints. The other, because of the persecution of the saints. We talked about that last week. In just the first four chapters, we've seen this remarkable faith community. They were extravagantly loving All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were extraordinarily generous, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. They were exceptionally bold. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. And today we're going to see in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. 5, 6, 7, and 8. Okay. Those chapters. We're going to see that they were efficiently organized. Now, I know that doesn't sound as exciting to you, but trust me, it will be. Okay? It's amazing how every single topic is so relevant, so contemporary to issues we still deal, deal with in the church in 2013. They were efficient at protecting from pretenders. But a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, conniving in this with him, Anyone ever seen a conniving wife? Don't raise your hands, guys. Don't raise your hands. Sold a piece of land, secretly uh, kept part of the price for himself, and then brought the rest to the apostles and made an offering of it. Peter said, Ananias, how did Satan get you to lie to the Holy Spirit and secretly keep back part of the price of the field? Before you sold it, it was all yours, and after you sold it, the money was yours to do with as you wished. So what got into you to pull a trick like this? You didn't lie to men, but to God. We talked last week uh, about the generosity of Barnabas. Joseph, he was generous. They changed his name to Son of Encouragement. And just as one name stood out above all others when it came to generosity, two names stand out above all others for being phonies. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, thought to themselves... That would be great if people looked up to us like they look up to Barnabas. But the truth was, they weren't generous people. They just wanted to be thought of as being generous people. And they want others to think they gave everything when in fact they kept back apart. I imagine it going something like this. They got together and prayed. Lord, help us sell this land. You know how hard it is to sell real estate in Elgin these days. But I'll tell you what we're going to do, God. You help us sell this land for top dollar, and we'll give all the money to the church, just like Barnabas did. 
And then the property sells. And the check clears the bank. But now they hear a different voice. Before the property sold, they heard, the Lord will provide. After the property sold, and they had the cash in hand, the voice they heard said, the Lord will understand. Here's the conversation. You know, you know, honey, you conniving little lady, you. We could keep just a portion of this money and, and, and pay off that visa bill. Just get it over with. And we've been talking about getting a new car for a long time. Interest rates have never been lower. Be good stewardship. We'll, we'll make up the difference a little later on. And when Peter confronted Ananias with the truth, he fell over dead. Right there on the spot. Now, I'm not saying if you don't come clean during offering time today (laughs) that we're going to carry you out feet first like Ananias. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that won't happen. I'm not saying that will happen. (laughs) I'm just not saying it. What I am saying, though, if you pretend to be generous, if you're not really generous, you just want to be thought of as being generous, you will be dead to the best life God wants you to have. I think it no coincidence, twice in these four chapters, five, six, seven, eight, that the issue of financial improprieties are dealt with. I mean, that's not an issue in the religious world today, is it? Financial improprieties? It can't all be group hugs and singing kumbaya around the campfire. It has to be about integrity, confronting pretenders immediately, decisively, The second incident comes in chapter 8. I told you it wasn't going to be sequential. So we're jumping from 5 to 8. And it goes like this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered. One of the things we see here is this amazing transformation of Peter. He is one bad apostle. Um, Peter answered. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart's not right before God. Simon the magician lived on in church history as the patron saint of those who wanted to buy and sell offices within the church. He wanted all the benefits of the life-giving spirit without the surrender. And the literal translation of what Peter says to Simon is, to hell with you and your money. Now, tell me which one of those words you don't understand, Simon. Now, it's true, the church welcomes everyone, but there is a corresponding truth. There can be no equivocation when it comes to tolerating pretenders trying to worm their way into leadership of the church. They were also efficient at serving each other. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers, by leaps and bounds... Hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists, toward the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. Among other things we see here is a multicultural, multiracial community as well. So the twelve called the meeting of the disciples. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the Word of God to help with the care of the poor. So, friends, choose seven men from among you, whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit... And good sense, and we'll assign them this task. Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned task of prayer and speaking God's word. 
They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you read through these chapters, you see a lot of miracles going on, signs and wonders. But in the midst of the signs and wonders, we learn that we still have to eat. And someone still has to cook the meals. And someone has to serve the meals. And guess what? Someone has to clean up after the meals. And so here's this church getting larger. And as it got larger, more complex, some people felt like they got overlooked. And they got their feelings hurt. I'm so glad we've outgrown that today. Even in the best of organizations, things and people can get overlooked. The question is, how are we going to handle it? There are two possible responses. We can murmur about it or we can mow it down. Murmuring is complaining about a problem to people who are not in a position to do anything about it. You can murmur at your job. You can murmur within your family. You can murmur within this church family. Let me remind you that murmuring brought the judgment of God upon the children of Israel, causing them to wander in the wilderness. A better option is to mow it down. Real simple formula. Tell the right person at the right time in the right spirit. And 99% of the time when you do that, you turn a problem into an opportunity to build trust and positive energy. Because God designed the church to be a place to value truth-telling in a safe environment. Now, You would have thought these unschooled fishermen were Fortune 100 CEOs the way they handled this problem. It's amazing. They weren't defensive. They dealt with it immediately. They delegated the issue. Now, when they said, we can't wait on tables, they weren't saying, we're too good to wait on tables. They were saying, in effect, we know where God has placed us. We know how He has gifted us. We're going to stick to that. If God wants this need met, He'll provide someone else to take care of it. Now, I don't suppose, like me, there have been times when you've been tempted when hearing about a particular need to drop what you're doing to go wait on tables. The need is not always the call. What is interesting to me in this text is the simple qualification for table waiting, the job description, the position description. Did you catch it? These table waiters were supposed to be spirit-filled and wise. I think that's an odd job description for a table waiter. If I would have written it, I would have said, must be nimble-fingered, able to lift 30 pounds or more, good physical hygiene. And that's why I didn't write it. Because the apostles understood that there are no mundane, unimportant jobs in the church. You never just wait on tables. You wait on tables with an attitude. You mow the grass with an attitude. You change the light bulbs with an attitude. And that attitude, that's more important than the table, the grass, the kitchen, or the light bulbs. And so the question I have for you this morning is, what's yours? What's your gift? What's your attitude? And are you serving? Everyone has a seat in the bus. Find your job, check your attitude. Now, how did this strategy work out for the apostles? It says later in the text that the word of God spread and a large number from a resistant group, the priests, were becoming obedient to the faith. 
They were also efficient at telling the story. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip has a divine appointment in an unlikely place with an unlikely person. He's on a hot desert road and he comes upon this important Ethiopian government official and he's in his chariot, he's reading out of the book of Isaiah. Can you see how the church goes viral in Africa after this encounter? Philip knew you don't sell the story, you tell the story. He knew it was about the good news of Jesus. I think if we could just tell the story about Jesus without our biases and preferences, cultural distortions, denominational do's and don'ts creeping in, I think we'd be more effective too. Tradition has it that this Ethiopian went back home and took the gospel to his country in Africa. I think Philip's approach still works today. Philip started where the Ethiopian was. He was reading Isaiah, and so Philip started with Isaiah. I think that's what we do. We start with where the other person is, where they are intellectually, where they are religiously, worldview, mindsets, educationally, Bible knowledge. We start with where they are, not where we'd like to start. So I want to make just a little application here. Let's fast forward to 2013. We're no longer on a hot desert road in Palestine. Here we are in the 21st century America. Where are people starting from today that you might bump into on your desert road this week? I'm guessing it's not Isaiah. You heard me talk last week about the amazing growth of the church in China. That's also true in the southern hemisphere today. But I probably don't have to tell you that today, that's not true for America. There are two groups in this country that have caught researchers' attention as being the fastest growing groups in this country in 2013. They call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and agnostics. The nuns are those who, when asked about their religious preference, answer none. I'll define agnostics this way. An atheist would say, I don't believe in God. An agnostic would say, I don't know whether God exists or not. An agnostic would say, I don't know what you mean when you say God exists. There is no content for that word, G-O-D. In this country today, one in four 20-somethings, the millennial generation, are nuns. One, two, three, a nun. One, two, three, a nun. In this country today. Globally, the third largest religious group after Christians, after Muslims, are the religiously unaffiliated. Nuns are the undecided of the religious world. So guess what? Our starting point with this group, dramatically different from where it was 30 years ago. Now, I happen to choose this as something that's positive. I think it's an opportunity. I think the American church has the greatest opportunity ever to become the authentic, electrifying faith community we read about in the book of Acts, for the church to come back to life in our country. Are they a resistant group, the nuns, the agnostics? Sure they are. But no more than the Jewish priests in the first century who were coming to Christ in large numbers. I'm glad fake church doesn't make it anymore 
in this country. We've tried Americanized, consumerized church. We've tried civil religion. We've tried that old-time religion. We've tried superstar pastors, televangelists, palatial buildings. And how's that worked out for us in the last 30 years? Just this week, a Gallup poll revealed that 77% of Americans say religion is losing its influence on American life. Youth culture is leaving the church in staggering numbers. There's data to support that. That's not not just some crackpot preacher made-up story. So maybe, just maybe, it's time for us to wade through our bibliography of disappointments and take a fresh look at this church in the book of Acts. It's a church that's protecting, not pretending. It's a church that's serving, not freeloading. It's a church that's telling, not selling. You know, that's the only kind of church I want to be a part of. To be that kind of church will take the faith that Stephen had. You remember Stephen? He's one of our table servers with attitude. We read about his speech and learn about his outcome in chapter 7. He dares to tell the authorities, the one we talked about last week that hauled Peter and John off to jail... He dares to tell them the truth. That's always a dangerous thing when you're talking to religious fakes. This time, instead of hauling them off to jail, their rage escalates and they begin to stone him. Here's the way it ends for Stephen. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he said this, He fell asleep. And Saul was there giving his approval to his death. How's that for authenticity? Now on his knees amid the flying stones and his last appeal to the heavenly court is not for his freedom but for his executioners. You think that story got told around town? We know for a fact it made an impression on one of the onlookers, a young man named Saul. You're going to hear more about him next week. He watched as the first stones plummeted down on Stephen. How could could that face still be that radiant? What was it that can give a man that kind of courage? It was a face that would haunt Paul... No matter how hard he tried, he could never forget the way in which Stephen died and the name for whom he died, Jesus of Nazareth. There was an anonymous letter written to a Roman scholar between the 2nd and 3rd centuries, just as the church was continuing to go viral across the Roman Empire. Now, this letter was not written by someone in the church. It was written by someone observing the church. Because in the final analysis, it doesn't matter so much what we say about ourselves... It's what those outside the church say about us. And so here's this outside observer looking at this new movement that is conquering the known world and writing a letter to a Roman scholar about what he observed. His letter goes like this. The Christians can't be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country, language, or customs. They don't live in cities of their own. They don't use a peculiar form of speech. They don't follow an eccentric manner of life. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. 
They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland. And yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else. They beget children, but they do not cast off their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship, it's in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, that Christians are in the world. Who wants to be up and in for that kind of church? And we're not there yet, but can't we aspire to that? Can't we make that our goal? I think when we do, I'm pretty sure that Stephen is in the grandstands cheering us on.